I'm Leah Simone Bowen, the host of Podcast Playlist on CBC. We're a podcast discovery show, and we love a great story. So each week, we highlight the podcast we think you should check out. The show is a classic. Love how they select their topics. It's great. And from time to time, we're joined by some of the biggest names in podcasting. My name is Jamie Loftus. John Green. I'm Michael Hobbs. My name is Nicole Byer, and I have a podcast recommendation. You can find Podcast Playlist on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. There's this moment in my conversation with Talking Heads. Now, this is a band that has barely been in the same room in the last two decades, much less all of them together for an interview. Anyway, at one point, Chris France, the drummer, says, Here's the thing about Talking Heads, Tom. We're awkward people. A rare opportunity, as I mentioned, to get all members of the legendary band in the same room to talk about the early days and the new restoration of their film, Stop Making Sense. Talking Heads, coming up. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. Psycho Killer from Talking Heads. Let's talk about Talking Heads, a band that was formed in art school in the 70s, went on to play CBGBs in the early days of punk with bands like Blondie and the Ramones. They go from being a little band playing little rooms to being one of the biggest and most influential bands in the world. In 1983, the director Jonathan Demme shoots a bunch of their shows and rehearsals and makes this film called Stop Making Sense, which is considered to be, and I would agree with this, the greatest concert film ever made. 40 years later, Stop Making Sense got a full restoration. It's back in theaters. And here's what you got to know. Talking Heads are a band that stopped playing together in the early 90s. And when it was announced that Stop Making Sense was remastered and it was going to be coming to Canada, a lot of whispers about whether the band would even show up. Would they be in the same room again? Because like with any kind of band breakup, like with, you know, a divorce, these emotions are all still near the surface, right? So you can imagine the honor we felt here on Q when all four members of Talking Heads agreed to come into our studio and sit around this table right here for a conversation. We talk about the early days of the band. We talk about Stop Making Sense. And at one point, David Byrne, with all four of them in the room, says what he's most proud of when it comes to that band. I want to let you know we taped this the day after the film uh, was in theaters in Toronto. That band all went to the screening and people were up dancing and it was, it was a lot of fun. Anyway, here you go. My conversation with Chris France, Tina Weymouth, Jerry Harrison, and David Byrne. Talking Heads. How are you? Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Good Thank to be you. here. Thank you, Tom. Nice to be here. Lovely. To, how did Chris? I'll start with you. How did last night go? I mean, I hear people were dancing in the in the aisles. I think it was a big success. Yeah. Uh, and and it was a great pleasure. Yeah. To 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 see the the restored film, and to hear the new audio, what what is called Dolby Atmos immersive audio. It, it really works. <laughs> it sounded, sounded all right. Yeah. We were dancing in the theater, and uh, we just saw a video of they did a simulcast. People were dancing in LA, oh. 
And, and, and Grumman's Chinese theater, they stormed the stage and were dancing on it. Oh, come on. <laughs> That's the greatest. That's what, what else do you want besides that? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Tina, what was the experience like for you for watching it? Oh, pure joy. Did you notice anything in the film you didn't notice before with the remastering of it? Yeah, I think the resolution and the color is just incredible. And I lo- of course, I love the, the, you know, the new audio because it really restores what it was actually like to experience it at the time. Jerry, did you have any idea when this thing first came out that 40 years later it would be talked about so widely and you'd be here mounting this restoration of it? No. I, I mean, I, you, you don't think 40 years. I think that one of the things that we did hope is that it would have resonance so that you would want to watch it more than once. And I think that the decision not to have interviews and to have it be a concert film meant that it could be a party for people. And uh, when we put it out, it was at the time of the Rocky Horror Picture Show, and we were fortunate enough to sort of then join those midnight shows, and it became something that lasted more than the sort of normal run of a movie. You were looking for something to be um, experienced kind of collectively by fans of the band. We just didn't think there was a need to talk about it. The music spoke for itself. Well, I'm, I'm happy we're here to talk about the film, but it's so rare to get you all in a room. I wanted to, to take an opportunity to talk a little bit about the band as well. Sure. And, and when we go back to sort of the early days, and maybe, Tina, I'll start with you. What do, what do you remember about meeting these two? What do you remember about meeting uh, David and Chris? Wow. Well, actually, Chris met David first in art school, and um, I heard legendary tales about this guy who actually dyed his hair with real Clorox bleach. <laughs> and, and he shaved half his beard off, like, um, vertically. And he wore um, Lurex clothes, Lurex shirt with leather pants that he sewed himself, and Lurex gloves, and he drove a convertible car. And I thought, wow, he sounds very different. <laughs> and, um, and Chris said, yeah, he's from Baltimore. <laughs> <laughs> Chris, what do you remember about those early days? Well, those were good times. Our art school is, um, for me, was kind of heavenly, you know, because not only was I surrounded by people that had similar interests and like minds, but... Uh, there, there was a lot of hot girls, <laughs> and that was important to me. <laughs> um, David, when when did the uh, impulse come to turn these friendships and turn meeting people into to start in this band? Oh, I think it might have been uh, it might have been Chris's idea. Maybe um, I th- I'd been I like in high school I'd played like just solo stuff like at coffee shops and things like that but yeah and then the the way i remember it if i could just add this mm-hmm. um we had a david and i had a mutual friend a guy by the name of mark kehoe who was making a student film he, he, about his girlfriend naomi getting run over by a car <laughs> and he, he he came to me and he said <laughs> Chris, I know you play the drums. Do you think you could improvise some music to go for this scene where my girlfriend gets run over by a car? And I said, sure, I could do that. 
and he, uh, he said, we set a date, and he, he, he said, do you mind if I bring a friend? I have a friend who plays guitar, and I said, sure, that sounds great. And uh, his friend that he brought along was David Byrne, mm. and we played this, this little piece of improvised music to, to accentuate the trauma of the car crash, and uh, it was sort of rose, uh, crescendoed, and then faded out, and I think we got it in one take, right. or at least Mark was happy. And at the end, I, I, David turned to me and he said, you know, I can play more than just this. <laughs> and I said, "Cool, because I've been, th- I've been." Ho- I said, "Cool, because I've been hoping to start a band." Uh, and that band we had was called the Artistics. That's right. And th- really, the reason for the Artistics' existence was to entertain our friends and ourselves. It was a cover band. One day, David came to the studio that Tina and I shared. And he says, "I've got the big. I've got this song uh, I've been working on. I wonder if you could help me with it." And he sat down and he played. I can't seem to face up to the facts. I'm tense and nervous, and I can't relax. And Tina and I were like, "Whoa, this is good." I can't seem to face up to the facts. I'm tense and nervous, and I can't relax. I can't sleep. My bed's on fire Don't touch me, I'm a real live wire Psycho killer, And that, of course, well, David had asked Tina to write the bridge in French because I think you thought that uh, changing languages would connote some kind of psychotic break or something like that. Exactly. And, uh, and I wrote a couple lines myself, more than a couple maybe, and uh, we started playing this song, Psycho Killer, with the artistics, and I noticed, and I'm sure David noticed, People liked this song very much, like right away, a song yeah. they had never heard before. Yeah, and we th- and so that indicated to us that we should do more of that. Yeah, David, what were those early Talking Heads shows when when the, when the Talking Heads became Talking Heads? And as Chris said, you decided to do more of it and making more original music. What were those early shows like? Uh, they're they were uh, to a fairly small audience. Um, it's CBGBs and a few other places. The name of this band is Talking Heads, and the name of this song is Psycho Killer. Uh, at first, it was just the three of us, and uh, yeah, I remember thinking that if twenty people liked us, that was a start. I mean. If 20 liked us, then maybe they'll tell their friends. Yeah. Maybe more will come next time. And that kind of did happen. It wasn't like instant success. Uh, some of the other acts uh, actually had quicker success than we did. But it, it kind of kept growing. So it was kind of exciting. And we kept, it was uh, also the kind of thing where we could try things out at that point that didn't work. 
we would try a song and and go, you know, that one that one is not really connecting with people, and we'll drop it from the repertoire. Which now it's a little harder to do. Yeah, I mean, people will kind of record it on their phones and get it out there. Yeah. But then it was like it was just like boom, erased from the collective <laughs> memory. Yeah, you could you could can you could kind of try anything you wanted and yeah. just try and try and try over mm-hmm. and over and over again. I mean, that does go to that that moment to CBGBs. Yeah. Um, the music the record companies signed was so drastically different yeah. that really all of the bands there had time to develop their sound without being critiqued so in, intensely. But it also meant that, and everyone kind of felt that the scene at CBGB's if you were part of that scene, you went, the rest of the world doesn't matter. This is what matters to us. But everyone was pretty supportive. Uh, and Hilly Crystal, would, if you played there, you got in free. So it was where we all went to hang. I mean, you got in free. People were generous with buying you drinks. Yeah. And it was also a room that was very conducive to, like, if you didn't really like this band, you went out to the sidewalk for this band, then you came in and watched this band. Yeah. So there was a real nurturing environment there, but it was also it really let people develop and and it is something that I think is is much much harder for bands today. Like when you were coming at it, when you were so you were in the Modern Lovers before you were right. in, in Talking Heads, and like were you hearing rumbles of this of this new band, and you were thinking, oh my god, this sounds. Well, I knew about CBGBs because I'd gone down. Terry Oric, who managed television when Richard Hell quit, Ernie Brooks um, tried out for it, so I'd gone down. So I was aware of what was going on, and uh, I had the good fortune that. Um, Ernie Brooks's uh, aunt knew Chris's parents. Yeah. And so they got <laughs> in touch so with me. And, and also the, the record that we made as The Modern Lovers came out many, many years later yeah. after we had made it. Yeah. And so we got in touch with each other and then found a way to, to uh, play together and then it worked magically I, from the moment. I love how mundane that is. I mean, and I mean that in the best possible way, you know, yeah. like the formation of this band that I'm very like excited and nervous about to have in the room. It's just like, well, yeah, well, my aunt knew her, his dad. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was really the case. And she, the aunts, Ernie Brooks' aunt said, you know, my son's in a band at Harvard. And I'm like, oh, really? What band? And she said, the modern lovers. And I said, oh, <laughs> knowing that they had recently split up. So I thought, ooh, we should call Jerry. <laughs> and then coincidentally, I bumped in, we bumped into Ernie Brooks at a, a place called The Local. I went over and introduced myself. And I said, I think I know your aunt and uncle. And he said, oh, yeah, that's, that's my aunt and uncle. And I said, by the way, do you have Jerry's phone number? <laughs> and he was nice enough to give it to us. It's a, it's, a, it's a beautiful thing. And then when you see it start to go from like 20 people to 40 people to, as you mentioned, everything else that was – we looked at the charts when Psycho Killer started going up the charts. We, like, we were getting ready for this interview. And the other bands at the charts at the time are like Foreigner yeah. um, and ABBA yeah. and Fleetwood Mac. And there wasn't anything that sounded like Talking Heads happening and, it, and I think it would have been fine had you made an art project that would have been great for the scene that you were in, but it started to get bigger and it started to get mainstream appeal. Tina, what was that like for you when, when things started getting bigger than just the scene? Wow. It, it meant that I had to choose because I thought we were just going to, you know, have some fun for a couple of years and then return to our serious métier of painting. Right. And, um, but Chris kept saying, 
oh, Tina, you know, you're a young painter when you're 40. You can only do this and tour when you're young. So you should, you should get a bass and do this. And he would bring home Susie Quattro records <laughs> and stuff like that. And, and so finally, you know, I just said, oh, people are so mean to Chris and David. They won't join their band. <laughs> and I thought, and I like them. I mean, I thought David just had the coolest style of playing guitar. His guitar at that time was a, um, a Fender Music Master, which is a student-sized guitar. And it was covered, well, not once we started playing at CBGB's, he took it off, but it was covered in leopard skin contact paper. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I just thought, but they're really interesting. I mean, Chris can really, I mean, he was the most probably technically proficient before Jerry joined. He, and I was the real punk coming in. Um, I had to learn everything. But I was, it was just a complete immersion, like, like learning a new language. But, um, yeah, I, I had no idea that it would become what it became. I just loved it from the get-go. You can tell that you had no idea that it would become what it became. I saw a clip of you guys on, like, Dick Clark yes. on American Bandstand, and you, you do look kind of bewildered with the amount of success that you were having at that time. It's taken you all over the world. Somebody over there said, if I had my chance, I'd, I'd record in England. Another lady said France. Have you been to those two countries? Yeah, we've been to both of those. Were you well-received? I thought so. <laughs> Is he always this enthusiastic, Tina? Does he bubble over like this I and mean, then just set the world on fire? I guess he's organically shy. <laughs> <laughs> when did the idea... So, so let's skip ahead a little bit. So the band, I mean, we don't have all the time in the world. So the, the, the band continues on and starts releasing these even bigger records and they start getting worldwide uh, fame and, and success and influence um, and then Stop Making Sense kind of happens and changes everything again. David, when did the idea for Stop Making Sense start? It was basically the tour we were doing at the time after uh, the Speaking in Tongues Tongues record Mm -hmm. came out, or it was just coming out as we we started this tour. And what's in the film is essentially the tour with a few songs cut out. And uh, so we were doing that, and, and I think at some point it was going really well. Audiences liked it, and we thought, this show has a kind of structure, a a shape, almost a narrative. Maybe somebody could film it. Maybe we could find some director to to film this and see what happens. And how did you you land on who ended up directing it? I seem to remember a friend uh, uh, introduced us to Jonathan Demme. It was Chris's aunt. No. <laughs> could, have, could have been, and uh, and we said, "Oh, yeah, we like his films." We, he'd only done uh, well. He'd done the most well-known ones he'd done at the time was one called "Handle with Care" and Melvin and Howard. He hadn't done "Silence of the Lambs" or anything like that yet, uh, but we liked those. And and uh, he he said, "Yeah, you you guys find the money, and I'll do it if you want." So then we had to go find the money yeah not not easy to do not easy to do but actually we largely self-financed it yeah right how did you want the 
film to look. I mean, it's it's you're right. It's the show. It's the show that you were touring at the time. But of course, it's it's so much more than that. It's um, it's it's a film. It's a it's a movie. How did you want it to look? Well, I don't. I mean, I think we to begin with, we wanted it to look like it looked on stage. But when we, I think that when we heard that Jonathan had that Jordan that Jordan was going to be the DP, we were all fans of Blade Runner. It was like, oh, we are in good hands. Yeah. And that I mean that was a you know an amazing. Like, this is going to look great. Hi. I got a tape I want to play. When did the idea to start that way, David, with the with the boombox and Psycho Killer and, and by yourself on stage and then have the band sort of join you? I mean, no one had really ever seen anything like that before. When did that idea come to you? Uh, gradually. We had done a tour, the previous tour. We kind of did a little bit of a build-up. We went from, like, the, the core band, the four of us, and then others came out. But I thought we can take this further. We can go even yeah. further with this idea. And I can imagine a way where it just starts with me and th- the groove on the on the boombox and acoustic guitar and then the same thing. But we really do it one by one, adding each each person. How did you feel when you were out there by yourself with the boombox? Um, how did I feel? <laughs> I was, to be honest... I'm having I'm having a great time, and I'm probably also thinking of everything that could go wrong <laughs> if the tape gets snarled in the boombox, or <laughs> um, if I fall when I'm kind of intentionally stumbling around the stage, <laughs> and all those, you know, all those little things. Really, in the moment, it sounds like to me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Chris, what are, what are your memories of, of of those those shows and doing uh, that filming and that would end up becoming stuff? I sense? remember the the joyfulness, the the way the way the the emotions and and the joy and the the ecstasy sort of snowballed from from the first song to the final song. It's like an avalanche of joy, and uh, I don't think that's overstating it, is mm. it? Mm. Uh, and to me, sitting behind the drums, I I couldn't dance around and jog the way the rest of the band did, but I was I was doing it like internally, <laughs> and uh, and trying, you know, not to drop a drumstick. <laughs> That's Chris France of the band Talking Heads sitting there at our table alongside Tina Weymouth and David Byrne and Jerry Harrison talking about Stop Making Sense. Let's listen to a song from that uh, recording. This is Talking Heads and Burning Down the House.
Talking Heads from Stop Making Sense, the greatest concert film ever made, Burning Down the House. Uh, you've been hearing my conversation with all four members of the band, David Byrne, Tina Weymouth, Chris France, and Jerry Harrison. Very rare that they all get together, much less for an interview. Uh, in a bit, you're going to hear more about how the film was made. David Byrne's going to talk about why he decided to wear that gigantic suit during the filming. Stick around. Talking Heads after this. Hi, I'm Willa Paskin, the host of Dakota Ring, Slate's podcast about cracking cultural mysteries. On Dakota Ring, we dive down rabbit holes and obsessively explore questions hiding in plain sight. Like, why has slow dancing gone out of style? And when did we all become obsessed with hydration? And where did the word mullet, you know, to describe a hairstyle, come from? That's Dakota Ring, named one of the best podcasts of 2023 by The New York Times. Listen to new episodes every two weeks and make sure to follow us so you never miss one. I'm looking at myself and going, who is that guy? (laughs) Who is that strange person? And what's going through his mind? He seems, in the beginning especially, seems like a very serious young man. You may find yourself... Living in a shotgun shack, you may find yourself in another part of the world. I'll be honest with you, as David Byrne was saying that to me, all I could think was like, and you may ask yourself, who is that guy? Who is that strange person? I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q, either on your radio or on our podcast, and you're in the middle of my conversation with Talking Heads, a very rare thing. All four members of Talking Heads, drummer Chris France, bassist Tina Weymouth, guitarist and keyboardist Jerry Harrison, and singer David Byrne all came into our studio for our conversation around this table to talk about the restoration of Stop Making Sense, the concert film the band made uh, about 40 years ago, considered by many to be the greatest concert film of all time. In this part of our conversation, we try to figure out why. Why was it so magical? Like, what was happening that made it so great? And I started by asking Tina Weymouth. Take a listen to this. Tina, you were, you're playing at a really high level here. I mean, I've had a number of people come in over the past seven or eight years I've been doing the show and talk about you as, like, a very influ- a great influence on them when it comes to, to bass playing. And you're, you're playing at a really high level here. You're, like, I said, like Chris says, you're jogging, you're dancing. Like, it's incredibly physical. Um, how were you approaching your performance back then? How were you pr- approaching your bass playing back then? Well, it was different from when we were a three-piece because when we were a three-piece, I David played a very trebly, brittle guitar sound, like shards of glass breaking. I could barely tell what chords he was playing. And um, so, so I tried to be sort of a melodic counterpoint for his vocal and but rhythmically tying in from Chris's drumming because I always thought Chris's drumming was music even before anybody joined in and I already heard all the tones so I think when we started we were like a little wind-up toy music box Mm -hmm. but then with Jerry joined the texture just expanded and increased and the range and the dynamic because he could play both keyboards he had a little Farfisa organ, and he could play guitar, and he also added background vocals, which was, you know, that was great. It made songs sound different from one another. 
So when the big band came, at first I thought, we didn't need all these people because we don't need to have, you know, two bass players and all of this. So backup singers and But all it that was stuff. fun, you see. That was the thing. Um, because we had been like, you know, these nerdy, uh, nervous uh, white people, you know, that just sort of stand still, <laughs> maybe twitch a little. Um, you know, our eyes sort of, you know, are just cutting back and forth, you know, nervously, self-consciously. And then along comes, you know, these real stars. Mm-hmm. Um, Bernie Worrell from Parliament, Funkadelic, and we had Lynn Mabry also, one of the brides of Funkenstein from P-Funk. And then um, Edna Holt joined us. And then we had Steve Scales, who was amazing. I mean, he'd been to Vietnam as a Marine mm-hmm. um, uh, percussionist. And so, and, and his playing was much more in the African style, not the Cubano, you know, uh, very different. And because he hit hard. So I was just so, I mean, really thankful. Let's be frank, I was a fan. I was a fan of this band. And I I would have to tell myself a lot of times, pay attention, don't drift away into dreamland, you know, listening to the music. Just focus. And so being with these people was great. I mean, the the nervousness kind of dissipated. Yeah. Um, we, we loosened up. Um, we did see Spinal Tap, and that made us like, oh, we can't take ourselves that seriously. <laughs> <laughs> so so you, it was a great experience. You know, um, I noticed uh, on social media this morning there were comments about the question and answer that we did last night yeah. with Spike Lee, yeah. who was hilarious, I yeah. think. But a couple of people said, they were so awkward, and I'm like, it's talking heads, man. We made a lot of money being awkward. <laughs> <laughs> you paved the way for the awkwards to have a career path, for God's sake. Jerry, it's a, a physical show you guys yes. are doing. I mean, you're jogging, you're moving. Uh, what, what do you remember about that part of the performance? Physically, were, like, were you working out beforehand? Were you prepping for it? Were you... No. I've, well, we had, we had been touring for enough continuously that you could just step into it. Right. But I, it was really the music is just too much fun. You have to dance, right? You know, and but there are those moments where things that just sort of accidentally happened that became the choreography. You know, um, but, you know, there's a place where David and I are stepping together, or I'm doing. You know, and I mean, David, you have plenty of them with Edna and uh, Lynn. It's just that happened organically over the course of the show, playing it for a good part of a year. That. These little things like let's that worked last night. Let's keep that. What was what was influencing your choreography? I mean, I was watching it again, and I was I was still blown away by. It. I mean, some of those moves have become like gifs and memes and stuff like that, David. And still, when I watch it, I'm still so blown away by it. What was what was influencing you? Mm, I have to think. I know some of them were just the music itself, the groove. You'd hear it and go, "How does this make me want to move?" Yeah. How do, when I hear this 
particular groove. How do I how do I want to move when I hear that? And you start doing it and going, okay, let's start from that. But then, yeah, I had. <laughs> uh, well, you know, like on uh, Life During Wartime, when Chris, there'd be that anticipated one on the, in the choruses, and I just, and it felt like I was being yanked back, yanked, yanked away from the, the mic. So that was just seemed like a natural move to for this anticipated downbeat. And, and the big suit, where did the big suit come from? I, uh, our previous tour, I think, ended in Japan, and I stayed on to stay with friends and visit and look around a little bit. And uh, I went to a fair amount of traditional Japanese theater, like Kabuki and No and all this kind of stuff. And I was t- talking with a, a designer who lived there, and I said, thinking about what 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 we could wear on our next tour. I'm wondering, what could we wear? And he said sort of facetiously, well, you know, David, in the theater, everything has to be bigger. And I'm thinking, he's referring to gesture and your voice and all that. And I thought, oh, oh, so my suit should just be bigger. I mean, it was amazing to see it on screen, too. I mean, it must have been pretty big there last night, you know. Yes. It was, it was, yeah. Big. It was quadruple X. <laughs> <laughs> big enough to me, a, a tiny house. I, I appreciate you talking a little bit about the early days and, and a little bit about this, um, uh, a little bit about how the show came about. Because what I wanted to talk before we go is a little bit about the impact of this thing. I saw it when I was 15 when we stole a VHS from my friend's brother. Jerry, I love that you smiled when I told you I stole it. But we did. We stole it from my, my friend's brother's bedroom when he was out at hockey practice because we we were all young kind of artsy music kids and we had heard about Stop Making Sense and I remember us watching it and moving and then Lee's out there who produced this interview she told me that like she grew up in Toronto I grew up in a really small place but she grew up in Toronto and she said she would go to these uh, nights they would film show it here and everyone would be able to dance like Rocky Horror like everyone would be able to dance in the theaters Jerry when did you know that it worked like when did you know that this was starting to resonate like when did you know that people were starting to have those experiences I think pretty. I mean, we went around to film festivals for the, the the first showings, but I think that when we finished the edit and the mix, we knew we had something special. But then it was uh, confirmed by the reaction at the at the film festivals. Then it took a little while for it to become what you said. The sort of it had done its normal run, and then it became this sort of let's have fun on the weekends, and we're going to play it at midnight. I think we were we got some good advice. I can't remember whose advice it was, maybe our manager, but the idea was with the movie in the beginning in the early days was to open small, not try to open in every theater in America or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Just open where near college campuses and art mm-hmm. houses where people can, you know, that's where our audience is and let it grow, let it spiral up 
And it really has spiraled up, hasn't it? it I mean, to this day, I mean, there's, yeah. there's still 15-year-olds stealing it, you know, yeah. trying, trying to track it down. Yeah. Um, last, last question before we go. And David, it's the hard one, so I'll, I'll give it to you. When you watched it last night on, um, and you got to watch this film again, I'm sure you don't watch it that often. I'm sure you hadn't seen it in a while. Until recently, no, I hadn't seen it in a while. What went through your mind? And, and maybe what were you most proud of when you were watching the, the old band back on stage together? I was impressed by, yes, how joyous it is, or at least how it gets to that point. It takes a little while to get there. Once it gets there, it's just like ecstatic. So I was impressed with that. I'm also, of course, uh, as in, maybe anyone would do, I'm looking at myself and going, who is that guy? <laughs> <laughs> Who is that strange person? Um, and <laughs> what's going through his mind? He seems, in the beginning especially, seems like a very serious young man. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I'm thinking to myself, relax, Dave. Take it. To you. Calm down. Relax. It's going to be okay. <laughs> it's, um, I, it, it was such a joy to get to see the, the film. Uh, it's such a joy to, to to reflect a little bit on the band. It's crazy that you're all here in the same room at the same time. Thank you so much for being here, and uh, and and thanks for making the time. Well, thank you for having us. Thank you. It's yeah. a pleasure. We appreciate you. Thank you. I appreciate you too, Tina. Thank you. We did it. This must be the place. Before that, my conversation with all four members of Talking Heads, David Byrne, Tina Weymouth, Chris France, and Jerry Harrison. It's very cool to have um, all, all four of them in a, in a room. I, as I mentioned in the introduction, it doesn't happen very often. Weren't sure it was going to happen right until they walked in. It was kind of was kind of like a military thing. I remember sitting in the studio and hearing, like, they're on the way. They've left the hotel. They're walking over. And then from what I hear, David Byrne uh, went on a bike ride. Right after the interview, uh, Matt Murphy, the director of this show, his wife said she saw uh, uh, David Byrne out for a bike ride after the interview. So I guess it's either a good thing or a bad thing. Uh, the other um, the other interview we have up today is a really interesting one. Craig Gillespie is a filmmaker. He made that movie, I, Tanya. His new movie is about the GameStop uh, saga. Do you remember that? And like, Reddit, Wall Street bets, these like group of internet stock traders took on Wall Street and kind of won, or, or did they? Anyway, Craig Gillespie has a new film all about it, and he'll be here to tell you what he found interesting about that story. Go check that out. I'm Tom Power. Later on.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.